Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to do verses, the last verses, verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 9. So the preacher is writing, and he just came through all this stuff about, remember we talked last week about the, uh, the last will and testament. He talks about how covenants are written in blood. And he says, thus it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy, holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have had then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, or so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, waiting for Him. Amen. This is good news indeed. So I, I want to spend my time this morning focusing on those last two verses, verses 27 and 28, because I believe that these verses contain the, the point, the the, the great takeaway, if you will, of, of the passage here. And the verses that lead up to it, verses 23 through 26, those are supporting uh, an argumentation for what he says in 27 and 28. And the preacher has already addressed those things in earlier texts, and thereby we have addressed them because we're preaching through the text, right? So I don't want to beat a dead horse. Not, that's probably a bad euphemism. Um, I don't want to belabor the point. Suffice it to say, Christ is the better sacrifice, Christ is the better high priest, Christ is the better everything. Jesus is greater. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to press upon us the superiority of Christ over every other system. Amen. So then we get to verse 27 and 28. Let's, let's read it again. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Amen. So let's, let's break this down. Verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes judgment. So from this, we learn that there is an appointed death for everybody. Everybody dies. Lazarus, though he was raised, guess what? He ain't still walking around today. He eventually died, Amen. right? The widow of Nain, her son, he was raised. Guess what? He ain't still walking around today. He eventually died, right? All those that were in the tombs at the, at the crucifixion that just got up out of the graves and started walking again, guess what? They're not walking around today. They eventually, it is appointed to every man once, we could say at least once, to die. Amen. Amen. Everybody dies. Death, and then after that, so there's a death, 
And then after death comes judgment. So look at the sequence here. This is the logic of the text. We appear, that is, we live. You have to once live in order to once die. Death is something that only the living experience. And in this case, since the preacher is talking about mankind in general, talking about everybody, all people, we know that he's not talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. He's talking very much about physical life and physical death and then physical reappearing to stand for judgment. Those who are in Christ, who are dead, in their, those who are, are in Christ and they die are not the only ones who will be raised. Those who are not in Christ are dead in their trespasses already. They're dead in their sin already. So he's talking about physical death. In order to physically die, you must physically live. So that's one. We live. That's the, that's the first step in the process. Then we die. That's step number two. There is a death. It is appointed for man once to die. So physical life, physical death, and then after that we face judgment. So in other words, after we die, our sin must be dealt with in judgment. We're going to be judged. Everybody. Now, consider this. That in order for that to happen, in order for us to stand for this judgment, to be present for judgment, we must appear again. We must be raised again to stand for judgment. So here is the logic of the text. In this text... We find support for the doctrine of general resurrection. That is to say, that is, this is a biblical doctrine that tells us that it's not just those who believe in Jesus who experience the resurrection of the body. Amen. Everybody is resurrected. All people will be raised physically from the dead on the last day. The difference is that Christians are raised to everlasting glory. And those who do not believe, who are not Christians, are raised to everlasting judgment. Amen. Amen. There are many passages in the Bible that teach this. We find support for this here, that both believers and unbelievers are bodily raised in the last day. There is a resurrection, a general resurrection. Acts 24, 15. Paul says that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. John 5, 28 and 29. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, everybody, shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So everybody's resurrected. Matthew 10, 28 tells us that we should not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather we should fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So we know from this biblical teaching then that for those who reject the gospel, 
They will also be resurrected, but their resurrection is to receive the judgment of hell. And that's not some nebulous, you know, conceptual idea, some spiritual experience. It is very much a physical and spiritual experience. Jesus would not have warned us to fear against the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. Right? So it's not just those who are in Christ. Have I belabored this point enough? Everybody is resurrected. We live, we die, we will stand again. Face judgment. So man appears, he lives, then he dies, then there's a second appearance that is to stand for judgment. This judgment happens specifically to deal with our sin. I'm going to deal with that specifically here in, in just a minute. But I want to show you something. So if you'll turn to Exodus 34, we read it this morning. God, by his own name, must punish the guilty. He must. He must deal with sin, and he must judge all of our sin, every bit of it, for every one of us. Exodus 34, remarkable thing happens here. This is where Moses goes back up the mountain, you recall, after he came down the first time and he broke the tablets because the people had fallen into idolatry. So he goes back up the mountain, he pleads with God, and God says, okay, come on back up, bring more tablets, and we'll do this again. Let's go back up to verse 4. Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And took, his hand, took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood before him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. The first thing I need to point out is the name of the Lord is being proclaimed here. And actually, His name is written all over the text. We've talked about this before, but you see where it says LORD in all caps. They may be small caps, but they're all caps. The ancient language manuscripts would have had Y-H-W-H or yod heh vav and was pronounced Yahweh. But nearly all of our English translations render it as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's not necessary to understanding the text to know that, but it is helpful to know that when you see Lord in all caps, it's God's actual name. In our language, the word Lord isn't a name. It's a title. No one, I don't know anyone named Lord. That's a title. But the thing is that God's name is His title. Or His title is His name. He's Yahweh. That's who He is. So God tells us who He is. His title is Yahweh. And we see a little bit what that means in just a second as we look at verse 6 and 7. But back in verse 5... If we replace the all-caps Lord with God's proper name, Yahweh, what we have is this. It says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him. That's Moses there. 
and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Or we could say, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed his own name. In the verse 6, this God, this is God proclaiming his name, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now we better know what that is, because if we don't, it's no different than me coming up to you and saying, Jeff, Jeff, or Jan, Jan, or Tom, Tom. I mean, God's name means something. And he tells us, this next bit is very important, God, Yahweh, tells us what his name is, what it means. Yahweh, Yahweh, God merciful and gracious. So Yahweh, first of all, first and foremost, Yahweh is God. That's, that's step number one. That's the first thing we need to understand. Yahweh is God. There is none beside him. He alone is God. We continue. Yahweh is merciful and gracious. Yahweh is slow to anger. Yahweh abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh keeps, uh, uh, he keeps steadfastness and love for thousands, is what it says. Some manuscripts say to the thousandth generation. That's an ancient Hebrew way of saying forever. It's like us saying, I, I want a jillion, jillion dollars. That means I have all the money. It's not a real thing. They didn't, it was like forever for them. Yahweh forgives, watch this, He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So God, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love forever and He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now that last bit there, that's all manner of unrighteousness. God forgives all manner of iniquity, transgression, and sin. And, and to your ears, you may hear that, you may read that, you may think, well, that sounds like the same thing. He's saying the same thing three times. Let me try to differentiate for you because it is glorious in the differentiation. Amen. Iniquity, so we see through this, through the differentiation, we're going to see through this the complete, total, Wiping away absolute forgiveness that is offered in God, all right? Iniquity. So to, just to give it a brief definition, that is the result or the guilt, the stain that we bear for sin. It is, it's the punishment, the judgment that is rightly deserved and earned and required by sin. That's iniquity. To try to illustrate... If someone is a drunkard, and everyone knows he's a drunkard, right? They're going, people are going to treat him differently because they know he's a drunkard. They're not going to trust him with certain things. They're going to talk differently about him. They're going to watch him differently, and, and, and so on. I mean, he's, he's going to bear the iniquity for his drunkenness, right? That's iniquity. It's what his sin, his drunkenness has purchased. Okay, the next two, transgression and sin, are very closely related, but there's difference in the nuance, and, and it's important that we get that. Transgression is the, the actual wrongdoing, the, the actual breaking of the law, the act of rebelling 
against the law. So, so think about the, the Ten Commandments, for example, specifically the commandment not to commit murder, okay? So the transgression against that commandment, thou shalt not murder, is murdering, right? If I murder someone, that's the transgression of the commandment. So if someone is unjustly dead at my hand, then I have transgressed this law. I have rebelled. The law has been broken. Someone has been murdered at my hand. Now think about this. There are any number of ways that I can transgress this law. Any number of ways that I can commit murder. And I'm sorry to take you down such a morbid path, but this is where sin leads us, right? So I could get, if I wanted to murder someone, I could get in my car, and I could go run them over. I could pull out a gun and shoot them. I could take a knife out and stab them. I could poison them. I could use my influence and my position to have them murdered like what David did with Uriah. I didn't do it, but I, I caused it, right? There's any number of ways that I can transgress this law. The command is, the law is do not murder, but all of those things, running, running them over, shooting them, poisoning them, those things are the acts that actually transgress the law. They're the things that we do that, that break the law, and that is sin. Here's another example, not related to God's law, but it's just a hypothetical so that, to try to paint the picture. Let's say that the law is do not break the glass. Okay? So breaking the glass is what transgresses the law. That is the transgression. If the glass gets broken, the law has been transgressed. Now, if I stand back a good distance and I pick up a rock and I chunk it at the glass and the glass breaks, I could, in my defense, say, I didn't break the glass. The rock broke the glass. I never touched the glass. The rock touched the glass, and the rock broke the glass. I did not transgress the law, therefore. The rock did. Now, if I only had to deal with the transgression of the law, then I could make that argument and probably go scot-free. But I don't just have to deal with the transgression of the law, the rebellious act. I have to deal with the sin also. The sin is everything that transgresses the law. So here we have to deal not just with the transgressing action, not just the broken glass, but we've got to deal with the, the desire, the intention, and the action that breaks the glass. So I, I wanted to break the glass. That was my desire. And that transgressed the law because the law says, don't break the glass. And I wanted what the law forbids. Therefore, I transgressed the law. Isn't that what James tells us? That desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So I desired to break the glass. I desired that the glass be broken even though the law forbids it, I desired it, and that transgressed the law, 
because the law forbids breaking the glass. I, I picked up the rock. And I thought about it and I studied it and I considered how hard do I need to throw this thing to get it to the glass. Because I intended to break the glass. My desire has moved. The sin has moved out of the realm of simple desire which transgresses the law because I want what the law forbids. Now it's gone into intent which transgresses the law because I intend to do what the law forbids. So I've studied this rock, and now it's moved from desire to intent. I've transgressed the law because I intend to do what the law forbids. And so now I throw the rock. So what has happened here? My sin has borne fruit. It's gone from desire to intention to action. I've thrown the rock, and the glass is broken. I acted in a way to bring my sin to its fullness. James says to birth sin. I've birthed it. It's born fruit. And that transgressed the law. Why? Because the law said, don't break the glass. Sin, then, is any desire, intention, or action that does what the law forbids. This is difficult ground here because this gets into the area of of temptation, right? Can you be tempted without desiring? Obviously you can because Christ was tempted and never wanted. Okay, so the temptation to sin is different than the desire to sin. Let me put it a real fine point on it real quick here. The idea that someone can be a homosexual Christian, so I have desires for someone of the same sex, right, is false. It's a lie. Because the desire itself transgresses the law. The law forbids it. And I want what the law forbids, which means I want what is wrong, unholy, wicked. Now, we can apply that to any number of things, right? Apply it to any number of things. The desire itself transgresses. That's the sin. So from the conception of it, we've transgressed the law. That's why the Bible can very confidently, very authoritatively say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. Because there isn't one of us, not one of us, not a single solitary one of us who has ever lived who hasn't wanted what God forbids. Save one. And that man was Jesus. Do you remember back in Matthew 5 when Jesus was making all those you have heard it said but I say statements about the law? One of them was he said, you have heard it said... Do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. In other words, the wanting of what the law forbids transgresses the law. Wanting what God has forbidden transgresses, offends God. It rebels against God. So I hope that makes sense. Have I labored that point long enough? Do you get it? 
Okay, I'll move on. Here we have Yahweh in Exodus 34. We have Yahweh proclaiming his name, and he starts merciful and gracious. Steadfast love, forgiving, not, not just iniquity, not just your guilt, but the transgression, the, the committing the thing that causes you to be guilty. Not just that, but sin, everything involved in leading up to the guilt. From the conception to the, the judgment, God, we have all that. Forgiving the guilt, the earned judgment, forgiving the transgression, the rebellion against the law, forgiving the desire to rebel, which is rebellion in itself, a complete, total, radical forgiveness from the earliest conception of our sin in our hearts all the way through to the final judgment of sin, total forgiveness. I mean, you can't wipe the slate any cleaner than that. In fact, it's as if God says, here, throw it away, here's a new slate. Because you start wiping things off a slate, guess what? You see smudges. God isn't doing it. Throw it away, here's a new one. Total forgiveness. Total starting, total forgiveness. Now that's amazing. That is the amazing, awesome, wonderfulness of what it means to be Yahweh. That we serve Yahweh. Hallelujah. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness forever. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and all that that means. And if we stop there, there is nothing more we have to deal with. There's no tension to wrestle with. What have I told you about tension in the Bible? Heresy resolves the tension. You want to see tension resolved here? Stop there. And this is exactly what churches are doing all over the country. In preaching a God that loves who has no justice. God loves you. He forgives you. And he accepts you and everything that is about you. He lo- he's all for you. And you know what? That is a very important part of the equation. But it is just part. Amen. Amen. It's big. Don't go, I cannot overstate the bigness of it. But it is just... If I stop there, that's how I get into the other heresies that we see going on today. Amen. That Yeah, you can be in a homosexual relationship and be a Christian. You can be a transgender person and, and still call yourself a servant of Christ. No, brother, you are lost. You are lost. And someone needs to have the heart to tell them. God wants me to be with another person. He wants me to be happy and not with my current spouse, but a new spouse. It's a lie. Verse 7, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but if there was ever a bigger but, I don't think I've ever seen it. (laughs) Who will by no means clear the guilty 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the iniquity, the guilt of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how serious sin is. That it, it, you don't just get it, but your kids get it, and your kids' kids get it. Get your house in order. Amen. Amen. Save your kids from the iniquity that you have borne. We might struggle here and ask ourselves, how in the world can this be? How can these things live in the same sentence? How can they occupy the same space? After all that talk about mercy and graciousness and forgiveness, complete, total forgiveness, how can it be that Yahweh means that He is God who will by no means clear the guilty? There's some tension there. We have to live with it. We have to wrestle with it. Here's the thing. It's why God's forgiveness extends to the sin, the transgression, and the iniquity, and why that's important. Because God is a just God, and He must deal with those things justly. He must deal with sin and transgression and iniquity. He must deal with them justly in order to be a just and holy God. The justice of God demands punishment, judgment for sin. It demands it. It would be violence against His own character if God were to simply overlook any of it. From the smallest little inkling of a desire to the greatest transgression of guilt. It all must be punished. If I go out and I take my key and I scrape it down the side of a 1972 Pinto. Did they even make Pintos in 72? I don't know. An old car. Worthless. And scrape my key down it. The law is going to charge me. I've broken the law, vandalized somebody's property, but my charge is not as great as it would be if I went out there and took my keys to the door of a brand new Lamborghini. Because the value of what I have offended, of what I have defaced, is far greater in that case. God's value is infinite. He is infinitely holy, infinitely wise. Infinitely valuable. He is the ultimate being in all the universe. He is everything. God is, right? Infinite. Infinitely worth. And so when I transgress the infinite value of God, my transgression is infinite. The punishment, you see people wonder why, how can God punish someone for eternity, for, for never... Never taking, never accepting Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what, because the punishment is infinite. Amen. Amen. To match the crime, which is infinite. Amen. Sin must be judged because God is just. And what God has forbidden cannot be allowed. It must be punished. Amen. Amen. So if Yahweh forgives completely, but he does not clear the guilty even visiting the guilt on their children and their children's children, then we ought to be asking ourselves, who are the guilty? And why aren't they covered by the total forgiveness that was just mentioned? These two things are totally true. God forgives completely, and God does not clear the guilty.
So who are the guilty and why are they not forgiven? Well, that takes us back to Hebrews 9. So go back with me to Hebrews 9. Remember the pattern in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So man appears, he lives, he dies. Then he appears again to stand for judgment for his sin. Verse 28, just like it is for man to appear, die, and appear again, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So we see the pattern repeated. Christ lived. He appeared. He died. That's the offering, His crucifixion on the cross. We're we're given the purpose of His death there. We're not told about the purpose of man's death. Notice that. But we're told about the purpose of Christ's death. We're told that not just that He dies, but that he he, He dies to accomplish something. And that something is that to, to accomplish the once-for-all bearing of the sins of many. Now, I can say once-for-all because of what it says at the end of verse 26. But as it is, he appeared once-for-all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the offering in verse 27 was his sacrifice of himself. It accomplished the once-for-all putting away of sin, the once-for-all bearing of sin, of the many. So from way back in Exodus 34 where God proclaims his name, we have that question, who are the guilty and why are they not among the forgiven? We're presented to us a similar question now. It's a related question and the answer to this question will help us answer the question from Exodus. The question here is who are the many? Because their sin is what has been put away. Jesus has borne their sin. He took their sin upon himself. So if we answer that, we will know who are among the forgiven from back in Exodus. And then we can know who are among the guilty. And then we can know which side we land on. So back to the pattern. Appeared, he lived, died, appeared again. Jesus appeared, he lived, he died to bear the sins of many. And he will appear again, picking back up in verse 8, not to deal with sin. That's why we're coming back. That's why we're resurrected. Because what does it say? We, we live, we die, we come again to face judgment. Jesus lived, he dies, he comes again not to deal with sin. Not to deal with sin again. And why not? Because he's already dealt with it. Amen. Amen. The judgment... For sin is written. The wages of sin is death. Eternal, tormented death. That's why Paul says that we are all dead in our transgressions. Without some intervening work of divine forgiveness, we are condemned in our sin. Judged. And all that's happening on the great day of judgment is the sorting of the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. You're already condemned. Jesus will appear again. The, the condemned, they're guilty, they've been judged, their judgment is outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Christ comes again not to deal with sin, but here's what he does come to do. He comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, I hope you're following me. If we are all guilty of sin, 
And God does not by any means clear the guilty. How then can we be saved? Because Christ, it says it in the verse, Christ took upon himself the sins of many. He took upon himself the guilt, the judgment, the punishment for our sin. This is why, thank you brother, this is why God is a God by his own name who forgives the iniquity, the guilt, the transgression, the rebellion, and the sin, the desire, from beginning to end. This is why he does that. So when Jesus comes again, it will be to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Who is that? That is those who have trusted in him and followed him and surrendered to him as Lord. It's appointed for every man to die once and then to face judgment. But you know what? Jesus bore, he faced it for us. He faith, I was just talking about that with Brother Dub this morning. How wicked was the judgment that he faced, that he endured. The wickedness that was poured upon him. The wrath of God poured out upon Christ. And he faced that for us. He bore the judgment for us and he offers forgiveness. That total, complete, radical forgiveness to anybody who will take it. Whoever Jesus sets free is free indeed. Total, radical forgiveness. And at the same time, we hold these things in tension. At the same time, God does not clear the guilty. So how is it that we are not among the guilty? Because Jesus has taken our guilt away. So you and I, we can stand before God totally free from guilt and shame and judgment. Some of you need to have that in your heart when you go into your prayer closet. And we go to God, oh, it's me, I'm so sorry. And you, you ought to feel guilty. You, you, you ought to go to him and ask him, Lord, I have sinned before you. There needs to be a remorse for sin. But you need to know that the judgment is done. Amen. The slate has been wiped clean. You stand before God in the name of Jesus, his only son, who is completely righteous. And he looks upon you with that same righteousness and says, come here, my boy. Come here. So you need to hear that this morning. You need to be reminded that you are totally and completely forgiven. So let that be an encouragement to you, that you don't bear the load of your sin. Jesus has done that. He's done that. Let that encourage you to, to move in joy with the relationship that you have been offered with your Father by the completed work of Jesus Christ. Some of you relate to God like the angry God of wrath, which He is, but not to you. Jesus purchased by His blood our guilt. Amen. He bought it. Amen. He purchased by his blood my sin and my shame. He bought it. So quit going before God and letting the accuser 
kill your soul and steal your joy. I've said before that no one wants to serve a God who all his people are depressed. Put a smile on your heart. Rejoice. And again I say, because you have much to rejoice for. I have been set free. And on the same coin, there are others of you who need to hear the other side. That God does not by any means clear the guilty. Sin is judged Period. Amen. Amen. But God has offered us such an amazing grace in Jesus Christ. So you, you can either accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness and trust his sacrifice to be sufficient to wipe away your guilt and shame and follow him, or you can stand and face your judgment alone and know that you will surely perish. The scripture says that God has set before us blessings and cursings and life and death. He's like, here, I've given you a choice. Now let me tell you which one to choose. Therefore, choose life. Can't make it any more clear. God is good and his mercy to us in Christ endures forever and ever. He has given us such marvelous, wondrous, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. All who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord, and I give you thanks this morning for this amazing grace you've given us. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is merciful and abounding in, in steadfast love and that you are slow to anger and that you forgive completely and that your love lasts to us forever. And I'm grateful to you, Lord, that you are a just God who will by no means acquit the guilty, because we have Jesus. You have given yourself to us, Father, so that we don't have to face a judgment for our sins, that we can walk free, we can commune with our maker. What else in the universe gets to do that? We get to commune with our maker. Father, thank you for this amazing gift. Thank you for this time when we take time now to just slow down a little bit and to Think about all that you have done. Let us tell the story of what you've done, not just in old days, but in our own lives, Lord, giving thanks to you for everything. Father, as we gather with our families and we travel, Lord, I pray that you give us traveling mercies, that you bless our fellowship as we do it, Lord. And if the gospel can be preached, Lord, let it be preached. Amen. Amen. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.